So uh, Walter Isaacson has written a biography of the great scientist Albert Einstein, and in that biography he mentions a quote that was attributed to a man named Lord Kelvin, who was an early 20th century physicist in England. And in an address that Kelvin was delivering to the British Association for the Advancement of Science in the year 1900, he said this, quote, There is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. There is nothing new to be discovered in physics now, Kelvin said. That was the year 1900, five years before Albert Einstein published his theory of relativity. Five years before Einstein brought in a harbinger of the birth of the modern world in many ways. Just when the scientific academy thought that all had been discovered in the world of physics, Einstein came along and he drilled even deeper into the way this world was constructed. And he ushered in a new revolution in thinking about the world. So here's my question for you at the outset this morning. Are you a Kelvin or are you an Einstein? Now, I don't mean intellectually, because none of us probably are. Well, some of you might be. I know I'm not. And I don't mean scientifically. I want you to think about this analogously this morning with me. Often in our spiritual lives, often in our lives following Jesus, we come to a point, if we're honest, where we really don't think there's that much left to experience or discover. We believe and understand the message of the gospel. We've got it figured out. We get it. And now it's time to move on to different topics. That is the way of Kelvin. There's nothing new left to discover. The way of Einstein, on the other hand, is to understand that there is always more beauty and glory to uncover in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is like, it's like a cavern with countless rooms. And just when you think you've explored it all, a whole new cavern is opened up for you. There's always more left to discover. That's the richness of this message that we call the gospel, the good news. So my question is, do you believe that this morning? No matter where you are, in your own spiritual journey, what you most need today and always is to understand how high and wide and broad and deep is the love of Jesus Christ for you. And friends, that is the purpose of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians is one of the letters written by the Apostle Paul. He almost certainly wrote it from prison in Rome in the year A.D. 60 or 61. And he sent the letter along with another New Testament letter, the letter of Philemon, to the church in Colossae through Onesimus. That's the man that delivered the letter. Colossae was a town in Asia Minor, which is present-day Turkey. It was a medium-sized town that existed in the Lycus River Valley, along with two other fairly significant cities, Laodicea and Hierapolis. And Paul had not planted the church in Colossae. The church in Colossae was planted by Epaphras, this man that we read about in our text this morning, verses 7 and 8. Epaphras had labored to plant the church there, and then he had delivered a report to the Apostle Paul and to Timothy about how things were faring. 
And Paul, although he has never met most of these Christians in Colossae, has apostolic authority over them. And so he sends them this letter. And the letter is intended to be for the Colossians a form of encouragement and also a method of instruction for them. So Paul wrote the letter to encourage these Christians and to address, as he always does in his letters, particular spiritual and theological issues that the church there was facing. All of the letters of the New Testament are contextual. They all come with a particular context, with particular issues that particular people in a particular time were facing, and Colossians is no different. In particular, the Colossians were dealing, they were dealing with a certain form of teaching that was the spiritual equivalent of what Lord Kelvin said in that speech in the year 1900. We've discovered all we need to know about Jesus. It's time to move on to, quote, deeper things. Some of the Christians there had begun to believe that there are secret pieces of knowledge that really are what you need to get to spiritual maturity and spiritual development. All you have to do is find out the gnosis, which is the Greek word for knowledge. And so this ancient teaching is called Gnosticism, based on that word gnosis. Gnosticism is a very, very old heresy that actually still continues today, that basically says, if you can get this key piece of knowledge, this key spiritual insight, that is, that is the golden ticket to spiritual maturity, to really getting what it's like. You've got Jesus, but now you need something different. So Paul writes the letter to counter that false teaching. And what he says again and again in the letter to the Colossians is that Jesus Christ, in the fullness and riches of the gospel, is sufficient. Jesus Christ is supreme. That's why I'm subtitling this series, The Supremacy of Jesus. So Colossians was written, and Colossians will be used here among us by the Holy Spirit to help us remember, to help us believe that all we need, really, all you need is to be connected by faith to Jesus Christ. In Jesus are hidden all the benefits, all the riches that God offers his people in the gospel. So for the next nine or ten weeks, we're going to look at Colossians And we're going to begin this morning with these verses that Sam read. So let me summarize the main idea for you of verses 1 through 14. Here it is. Because of the power of the gospel, we can confidently pray for God to work in our lives. Because of the power of the gospel, we can confidently pray for God to work in our lives. We can divide this up into two parts. Paul says he's thankful for what God has done, verses 3 through 8. And then verses 9 through 14, Paul is prayerful for what God will do. Part one, he's thankful for God for what God has done. Part two, he's prayerful for what God will do. So let's look at that first section first, verses three through eight especially. Paul's thankful for what God has done. Now he begins his letter in verses one and two as he almost always begins his letters and as most ancient letters started. They started by the author telling the readers who he is. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And then he addresses the recipients to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then we find in verses 3 through 14 an extended prayer of thanksgiving. This mirrors what we see in other letters like Ephesians and Philippians. 
And as I said, you can divide this prayer into two parts. Verses 3 through 8 is Paul telling the Colossians that he's thankful for what God has done. And verses 9 through 14 is really his actual prayer telling, he's telling the Colossians what his prayer for them has been. So look with me in verse 3. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then he tells them that he's thankful because he's heard about God's work among them through his visit with Epaphras, their former pastor, the man who had planted the church there. And really there are two things that Paul says he is thankful for. First, look with me in verse 4 and 5. He says he's thankful that he's heard about their faith and love and hope. Faith, hope, love. That's a familiar triad in the Bible. If you're familiar with the New Testament, you might know that that appears elsewhere. It's often read in wedding ceremonies. It shows up in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, most famously. And it tells us, it tells us that the way the scripture views spiritual progress is usually in terms of these three major categories. A growing and abiding faith in Christ, a love for one another, and a certain hope, a certain hope for the renewal of all things when Jesus Christ returns. So here, right at the outset, we see a sure sign of grace at work in a people. A sure sign of grace at work was the fact of a loving community created out of nothing. A sure sign of grace at work was the fact of a love not restricted to those with whom one has natural affinities, but which extends, as Paul says, to all the saints, to all Christians. So think about that, friends. Is that true in your life today? Is the gospel at work in your life so that you can say of yourself, some of the people I have relationships with, some of the budding and thriving friendships I have, I would never be friends with these people if we weren't both followers of Jesus Christ. I, in fact, have very little in common with these people at all. When we look around and see the relationships that the Holy Spirit is knitting among us, can we think, what are all these people doing in the same room? You know, that's what a church should be like, in a sense. You should look around and think, this is a diverse group of people. I see myself fitting in here, but these people in some ways aren't like me at all. That's how the Holy Spirit moves. That's a sign of grace at work. There's love. Love for one another, not based on common interests or natural affinity, but based on unity in Christ through the Holy Spirit. Paul had seen that or heard about that with the Colossians. And so he says he's thankful. Secondly, verse 6, Paul is thankful that the gospel which he calls here the word of truth. The word of truth, the gospel, is doing two things. It's bearing fruit and it's growing among them. Man, I love, love the way that's worded. That's been rolling around in my head all week. Um, think about that. Paul is rejoicing, really, in the ordinary ministry of the church among the Colossians. Epaphras, he had come to town, and uh, he had begun proclaiming the good news of the gospel. We read about it there in verse 7. And people had heard this message of the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And they had believed it. They had believed it to be true. And guess what? Their lives were transformed. Their sins were forgiven. Their identities were changed. Their allegiances were altered. And they came together as fellow servants and worshipers of God. 
And Paul says the gospel is continuing to work among them. I love this about the letters of the New Testament. You know, these letters represent for us what was obviously an extraordinary time of the Spirit of God awakening hearts. But at the same time, it was absolutely ordinary. You know, the ministries of Paul and Timothy and Epaphras set a template for us now of how God still moves through the planting of new churches where the gospel is proclaimed. You know, it's amazing about our faith. If you're a follower of Jesus, that 2,000 years after this was written and 6,000 or so miles away, we are a part of the exact same work and we experience the exact same power of the Spirit through the exact same message of the gospel. What I love about this is that Paul says here that the gospel is something, it's something that grows. It's something that grows. The gospel is a living thing. Paul personifies it here. It's almost reminding us of Jesus' parable of the sower where he says, the good seed falls on the soil and it bears fruit. That's exactly how Paul's explaining the gospel here. He says elsewhere in Romans 1 that the gospel is a power. It's the power of God for salvation for anyone and everyone who believes it. He says here that the gospel is like a seed or it's like a tree that brings more and more new life. It bears fruit. It expands. It grows. I watched a really interesting YouTube clip this week. You can check it out when you get home this afternoon. It's called How Wolves Change Rivers. How Wolves Change Rivers. It's about four and a half minutes long. And it's about wolves coming back to Yellowstone National Park. Now, I didn't know this. Some of you might know this. Um, wolves were gone from the park for some 70-odd years in the 20th century. And uh, that means that the elk and the deer became overpopulated. All you hunters are like, that's right, they did, right? And um, they needed to be killed, right? And because the deer and elk were overpopulated, they overgrazed, which means the rest of the ecosystem in Yellowstone suffered in various ways. And so some ecologists in the mid-90s, in 1995, reintroduced 14 wolves, 14 wolves into Yellowstone National Park. And this began what is called a trophic cascade, a trophic cascade. I like that phrase too. You can use it at dinner tonight if you want. It's impressive. A trophic cascade is when a top predator is reintroduced and it restores balance and flourishing to an entire ecosystem. And so the wolves came back. And immediately they killed some deer and some elk, right? But another thing that happened is that the deer began to avoid certain areas of Yellowstone where it would be easy for them to be trapped, like gorges and valleys. And as a result, the grass and the wildlife in the gorges and valleys begin to regenerate almost immediately. The size of trees in Yellowstone quintupled in six years quintupled in six years. And because of that, the birds came back. And then the beavers came back and the beavers built dams. So otters and ducks and fish had new habitats. And the wolves also killed coyotes, which means that rabbits and mice grew, 
which meant that more hawks came and more weasels came. And then the bear population began to expand because there were berries on the new shrubs. And then the bears reinforced the impact of the wolves. And amazingly, the wolves even changed the behavior of the rivers. The rivers eroded less. They formed more pools. They meandered less. And the reason was that the regenerating forest stabilized the banks so that the rivers became more and more fixed in their courses. So 15 wolves in the span of 20 years transformed the ecosystem and the actual physical geography of Yellowstone National Park. Now, at the risk of comparing Jesus to a wolf, I love that illustration. I'm going to do it anyway. That's what Jesus does. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is intended. Listen, the gospel is intended to transform your entire spiritual ecosystem. Jesus enters your life and he starts messing with things so that you see immediate change and you also see gradual change. That's what Paul's saying here. The gospel is planted in us and it bears fruit as we more and more understand its greatness and its implications. And the gospel continues to grow in us and to renew us throughout our lives. That's what Paul says, verse 6. It's been doing this since the day you heard it. So the gospel is a truth about something that has happened in the world regarding Jesus. But it's also a living power that continues to expand its influence over our lives. Something we often say here is that the Bible reads, reads you more than you read the Bible. What's the Spirit saying to us through this text? How is it reading our lives and our hearts? It's asking. The Spirit's asking, is the gospel growing in your life? Is the gospel bearing fruit? Is the gospel expanding? Is its influence transforming your spiritual ecosystem? And if so, what are the signs of that? That's what I want for us this year at Christ Church as we enter into 2019. There's all kinds of signs that the gospel is reworking your spiritual ecosystem. I want to meditate for a few minutes with you on three. Three, real quick. One way you know is when there is a spirit of renewal and joy in corporate worship. When there's a spirit of renewal and joy in corporate worship, when our gatherings are gatherings where we experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, where reverence and awe at the greatness and majesty of God is evident, but also evident is intimacy and closeness with the God who is near. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Is that your experience? Are we here just going through the motions, singing a few songs, confessing some sin, hearing a sermon, going home for lunch or going out to lunch, and our lives really don't really make much difference at all. Is that what's happening? Or is there a spirit of renewal here? When the gospel is transforming our ecosystem, that's what you begin to see. Second, when the gospel is transforming your spiritual ecosystem, you see an eagerness to confess. An eagerness to confess sin to one another and to extend forgiveness to one another. You see uh, true relationships growing. You see marriages getting better because sin is no longer being hidden. But as 1 John says, we are walking in the light as children of light. And it's only faith in the gospel that allows that to happen among us, you see. Because the gospel tells us we are actually worse than we think. Welcome to Christ Church. You're worse than you think you are. We're glad you're here. 
Your sin is much more of a problem than you want to admit. It's much more of a problem than you're willing to confess. And the only person that really knows that about you is God. And God, the person who knows the most about your sin, is also the person that loves you the most. Because God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, who humbled himself even to death on a cross and bore our shame and bore our guilt and forgives us fully and freely through his shed blood so that we can be forgiven. If that's true, if God views us as beloved children, even though he knows us better than we even know ourselves, then, then, if that's true, then we are actually free to be honest about our own struggles. We're free to be honest about the things that are hindering us with those closest to us. One way that should show up is in your marriages. Another way it should show up is in your relationships with your children. I often get asked, how can I get my children to understand that Christianity is true? Well, here's one of the main ways. They need to see you saying, Dad, you're sorry when you mess up. They need to hear you saying, Mom, please forgive me for my anger towards you, for losing my temper, for my impatience. And you can do that because you know that God forgives sin. And you can also receive people's for confessions and forgive them freely and truly. When the spiritual ecosystem in your life is being transformed by the gospel, there's a new openness and honesty. There's not a, there's not a sense of allowing sin to fester or hiding sin in some dark spiritual corner of our lives, but there's bringing it out in the open and putting it to death by the power of the Spirit. Is that happening in your life? That's my prayer for us this year. Last thing, last example This isn't exhaustive, but this is just what the Spirit put on my heart. When the spiritual ecosystem of your life is being reworked by the gospel, there's going to be a desire to be with God. A desire to be with God and to seek Him through prayer. There's a palpable sense that God is your Father. He's your Abba, your Daddy. He's not the traffic cop waiting on the corner to pull you over when you've messed up. He's not just a judge. He's your beloved father, and you're a part of his household, and he loves you just as much as he loves his begotten son, Jesus, because you're connected to him by faith, so that the spirit of God cries out with our spirits, Abba, Father. Is that manifest and evident in your life, in your prayer? If it is, or if it's more and more becoming so, that's a sign that the truth of the gospel is reworking. It's reworking your heart and your mind, your spiritual ecosystem from the inside out. That was happening among the Colossians, and Paul was thankful. And so in the second part of our verse, verses, Paul prays for what God will do. Verses 9 through 14 form his actual prayer. And I want to say two things about this this morning, and then we're going to actually spend some time praying together. Uh, Because that's something Christians do. They pray. So we're going to do that. So, but first, two things. First, I want you to see here that Paul prays with confidence. Paul prays with confidence. Look at verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, etc., etc., etc. That opening phrase there, and so, that can also be translated for this reason. In other words, in light of everything I've heard about what God is doing among you Colossians in verses 3 through 8, 3 through 8, I'm going to pray this prayer with confidence. Okay? 
Because Paul has heard about what God has already done, he prays confidently for what God will do. To put that a little differently, the finished work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection in the gospel, that is the ground of our prayers being made with confidence. Because Jesus Christ died for us, the way to God is open. Because Jesus Christ was raised from death to new life, never again to die, we, by faith, are raised with him. Because of that, we're adopted sons and daughters of the Father. And we know that he will hear us when we make our requests known to him. Listen, a conviction of the truth of the gospel brings a confidence in prayer. A conviction of the truth of the gospel brings a confidence in prayer. When we know that God has answered our greatest problem, the problem of our rebellion against him in sin, through Jesus, we can trust that he will answer our lesser problems that we bring before him in prayer. Our problem is that we don't tend to view God like that. So our prayer is not confident. We view God like a genie in a bottle. If we can find the bottle, we might get him to do what we want, but we only get three wishes, right? That's not the way God is. God is a father. And Jesus tells us, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so will God, who is perfect and loving, be able to give good gifts to those who make their requests known to him? Paul prays this prayer with confidence. Secondly, wrapping it up, Paul prays with helplessness. Paul prays with helplessness. Have you ever thought about this? The strongest followers of Jesus are the ones who know that they are the weakest followers of Jesus. That's the paradox of the Christian life. It's also the paradox of prayer. Paul, the author of these letters, this guy's an amazing man of faith. He's amazing. He plants churches all over the place. He changes the world. He's persecuted. He's ultimately martyred, put to death because of his conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. And yet, the same guy, Paul, can say at the end of his life, 1 Timothy 1, I am the chief sinner. That's me. Paul's greatness lies exactly in the fact that he knows how weak he really is. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for me? It means that the great prerequisite for your prayer life to grow is the exact same prerequisite for you to know the gospel, and that is acknowledging your own helplessness. Why do you think Jesus, why do you think Jesus repeatedly tells his disciples again and again in the gospels, be like little children? Be like little children. Jesus does not mean there He does not mean be innocent. Can I get an amen to young parent from young parents? Little children ain't innocent. They're not. He means be helpless. Ask your father for what you need. Rest in glory in your own helplessness, in your own weakness. Listen, listen, the gospel, God's free gift of grace in Jesus only works. It only works when we realize Not just that we don't have it all together, but listen, we don't have jack squat together. We're not even close. We're not 50% of the way there. We don't have anything together. We're completely helpless and utterly vulnerable. 
And the same thing is true for prayer. Paul Miller, in his, I think, the best book I've ever read on prayer, called A Praying Life, writes this. Prayer is a moment of incarnation. Prayer is a moment of incarnation. God with us. And then he tells a story, (laughs) Paul Miller, about a book that he had recently read on prayer and preparing to write his own book on prayer. And in the book, the author said uh, that you should not pray for trivial things like finding a parking spot when you pray. And it's almost as if the author was saying, you should only worry about major things going on in your life. And Paul Miller sort of laughed at that. And he took that part of the book to his mother, Rosemarie Miller, who's one of my spiritual heroes, along with her husband, Jack. And he said, Mom, do you think that's true? That you should not worry about asking God where to find a parking spot? And Rosemarie looked at him with this quizzical look on her face and said, well, how else would you find parking? how else would you find parking? She just assumed. She just assumed that, of course, you take those things to God. That's the only way you're going to get a spot. I wonder if you view your life that way. The only way you're going to survive today, the only way you're going to draw in breath in the next 15 seconds is because God is sustaining you. The only way you're going to experience growth and joy and hope and peace is because God in Jesus has granted you through his sovereign power and mercy just those things. Paul Miller says, the very thing we are allergic to, our helplessness, is what makes prayer work. It works because we are helpless. We can't do life on our own. And in this way, prayer mirrors the gospel. Can you acknowledge this morning, can you acknowledge at the outset of this year your own helplessness. Because that actually is the only way to get to a confident place of prayer. The best way to know if you're really helpless, if you really know that you're helpless, is to gauge your prayer life. Do you pray without ceasing, making your requests known to God, Philippians 4, 7? If you do, or if that's something that's growing in your life, then you get that you are helpless. Do you hardly pray at all, or only when some major catastrophe has struck? then you don't really think you need God. You'd rather go it alone. Someone who wants to go deeper in the gospel is someone who's more and more going to see their own desperate need for Jesus. So as we wrap up, remember. Remember Kelvin and Einstein. Don't be like Lord Kelvin. (laughs) Don't be a Kelvin spiritually who thought that there was no more left to discover. Pursue the path of Einstein. Let's commit this year to being a people who want to go deeper in the gospel, knowing more of our need, and therefore knowing more of God's love. Prayer, friends, is what will get us there. By God's grace, and by the work of the risen Jesus Christ Spirit among us. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm trying to cut this a little short. You might think, that wasn't short, Luke. We're going anyway. We're going to take a few minutes, and we're going to gather as a congregation, and we're going to pray. This is the first Sunday of the new year. It's a great time for us to do this, to recommit our lives to prayer and to dependence upon God. And typically in our prayers of the people, uh, one of our elders will pray. But this morning I've asked three of our people to come up and lead us through Paul's prayer here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14. So you folks come on up. And uh, what I would like for you guys to do is uh, we're going to take five or ten minutes here. And we're going to go before the Father as a family of faith. And uh, feel free to, if you want to, express 
physically, your dependence upon God. You can get down on your knees. We don't have kneelers, and your knees will probably hurt down there for a while, but you're welcome to do that if you want to do that. You're welcome to bow your head and close your eyes, and let's seek God together. Anne is going to pray, and then Ben, and then Christy, and then I'll close us. And we're just going to go right through uh, Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And uh, these three are going to lead us with what the Spirit has put upon their hearts as they pray. And we're all going to spend some time and engage the heart of God and seek God's face together as a church family this morning. So let's do it, okay? Let's go to prayer. And.